Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Happy birthday, Darwin. That's the first thing that we can, uh, uh, that we can say. So here are the familiar facts that we all know. Over 50% of Americans claim to disbelieve the theory of evolution, uh, regardless of education. Uh, often focused at, uh, educational efforts fail, and it gets worse. I think for me the most discouraging fact about public acceptance of evolution is not that 50% of Americans don't believe the theory, but that the other 50%, in other words nearly 100%, uh, don't really uh, relate it to matters uh, in, in their own lives. Uh, for them it's about dinosaurs, fossils, uh, human origins, all great stuff, I'm not disparaging it, uh, but not the current human and planetary condition. If there was a survey that, uh, that measured the fraction of people that relate evolution to their everyday lives, it would be minuscule, and it gets worse. Um, there's not one but two walls of resistance to evolution. One involves denying um, evolution altogether. Um, that's what uh, we know as creationism and intelligent design. Uh, but then the second wall accepts evolution with respect to the rest of life, but denies its relevance to uh, human affairs. And this wall of resistance is alive and well within academia. And one reason why I don't spend a lot of time bashing creationists is because I think that we have a problem in our own backyard. I call it uh, higher education's evolution uh, problem. And I'm speaking now to an academic audience, so I think you know what I'm talking about. Here's one example from an article by Barbara Ehrenreich and Janet McIntosh about uh, sort of the postmodern and the uh, social constructivist tradition. This is common in, in any academic discipline that is, that is centered on the study of culture. And uh, they write, the result is an ideological outlook eerily similar to that of religious creationism. Like their fundamentalist Christian counterparts, the most extreme antibiologists suggest that humans occupy a status utterly different from and clearly above that of all other living beings. And like the religious fundamentalists, the new academic creationists defend their stance as if all human dignity and all hope for the future were at stake. And uh, this kind of... Um, um, Attitude is found not only amongst uh, cultural studies folks and, uh, and literary folks, these are the folks that are dressed in black, but uh, also uh, in the human sciences. So here's a quote from uh, the political scientist uh, Ian Lustig at the University of Pennsylvania, written in 2005. And political science is very scientific, very theoretical, uh, very quantitative, very statistical, but still Lustig could say this, of course social scientists have no objection to applying evolutionary theory in the life sciences, biology, zoology, botany, etc. Nevertheless, the idea of applying evolutionary thinking to social science problems commonly evokes strong negative reactions. In effect, social scientists treat the life sciences as enclosed within a kind of impermeable wall. Inside the wall, evolutionary thinking is deemed capable of producing powerful and astonishing truths. Outside the wall, in the realm of human behavior, applications of evolutionary thinking are typically treated as irrelevant at best, usually as pernicious, wrong, and downright dangerous. And so I think that this failure to extend evolution, uh, evolutionary theory beyond biology, is connected to an even bigger problem that many of us appreciate but do not associate with evolution, and that is the fragmentation of knowledge as a curse of the academic uh, world. I like to say that the ivory tower is better named the ivory archipelago. Many islands of thought with very little communication among islands. 
And I think that this is in part because the, co the common language, the common theoretical language, which does exist in the biological sciences, has not yet been extended to, um, to the study of humanity. So I really think that this is an important moment in intellectual history. For complex reasons, even though when Darwin proposed his theory, everyone at the time knew that if true, the consequences for our understanding of humanity would be momentous. By the early 20th century, for complex reasons, evolution had been restricted to the biological sciences and largely avoided for most human-related subjects. And so like Sleeping Beauty, evolutionary theory took a nap, a hundred-year nap, for the study of humanity and has only reawoken uh, very recently, within the last 10 or um, 15 years. And so only now is, evolution, is, is evolutionary theory spilling beyond the biological sciences, like water bursting from a dam uh, and flowing into every human-related uh, uh, subject. It is a very exciting time, I think, to be an intellectual um, at this particular uh, moment. So this is what's happening at the level of research and scholarship, but it is not yet reflected in higher education. I want to spend just a little bit to document this fact, a very important fact for all of us, is that, that, evolution, that this, this expansion is not fringe science and not future science. It's already taking place at the level of research and scholarship, but not yet reflected in higher uh, education. So some years ago now, I did an analysis of this journal, Behavioral and Brain Sciences, Scientists love to quantify everything, including the impact of their journals, and, and BBS as the highest impact factor of any behavioral science journal. I also chose it because it's uh, exceptionally diverse in its coverage of topics, everything from neurobiology to cultural anthropology. And what I was able to show is that over a five-year period, over 30% of the articles uh, were written from an evolutionary perspective on this rainbow of topics that we see here. And this also holds now for, I mean, uh, any of you who are familiar with this literature know that the, these articles are appearing all the time now in our best journals, Science, Nature, PNAS. So these are rigorously peer-reviewed journals, and you do not publish in these journals unless this is top um, uh, flight science. And very often, evolutionary approaches to human behavior are portrayed as fringe science, and I want to I make it clear that that is not the case at all, that this is something which is already in progress at the... Um, at the level of, um, of research and, um, and scholarship. Well, I then sent a, a survey to the authors of these articles asking them a number of questions. So here I ask, uh, what kind of evolutionary training did you have in graduate school? These, are now, these people are now at the forefront of the study of humans from an evolutionary perspective. And we see here that most of them had very little evolutionary training in their own higher education. How much training in relation of evolution in relation to human uh, behavior? even less. So most of these folks are self-trained. When did you receive your training? When were you self-trained? Before or after your PhD? That's across the board, but most of these folks were actually picked up their knowledge of evolution after they received their PhD. Uh, was your self-training uh, facilitated or inhibited by your institution? Most say neutral, and otherwise it's across uh, the board. At your current institution, how well connected, how are you surrounded by like-minded people who are also approaching human behavior from an evolutionary perspective? And we have a gratifying spike here. I like to think that people at UCLA will belong 
to that spike because uh, you know there's wonderful centers here. Everyone, every center and organization that's sponsoring this series consists of a group of faculty and, and graduate students, in some cases extending to undergraduate uh, education, which are indeed well connected and uh, should be very um, uh, pleased with the uh, intellectual environment that they've uh, picked for themselves. But of course, many other people uh, feel isolated within their own departments and university. And then finally, these last two graphs, apart from your own situation, because these folks, after all, they might be part of a center which extends to a small group of faculty and graduate students, but doesn't extend to the whole university. So at your institution right now, how easy would it be for the average graduate student in a human-related area to uh, receive evolutionary training? And we see that the situation now, by their estimation, is little different when, than when they were receiving their higher education, and so also for um, an average uh, faculty member. And so already happening at the level of uh, research, not yet reflected in higher education, where in the vast majority of colleges and universities, the um, um, evolution is still taught as a biological uh, topic. So something that we can say here is that any college and university that is not teaching evolution in relation to human affairs is out of touch with current research and scholarship. And so it's for that reason that we created EVOS, which uh, was uh, kindly mentioned at the beginning, uh, the first campus-wide program to teach evolution as a theory that applies to all aspects of humanity. In addition to the rest of life, we just received NSF funding to expand into a, a consortium, which I think is you know, quickly going to become nationwide and, and worldwide. And uh, one reason I'm here is to talk about this. Um, uh, and uh, I think UCLA is poised to become a, a key member of the uh, consortium, because you have so many parts here. And this program, in good evolutionary tinkerer fashion, is built out of existing uh, parts that exist to some extent at, um, at uh, every college and, and university. And it's a matter of making the most of these parts. So we did a very good job at Binghamton, but the number of parts that you guys have at UCLA just is uh, 10 times greater than the number of parts that we had at, uh, at, um, at um, Binghamton. Okay, so uh, for the rest of this talk, I have three modest goals. My first goal is to uh, show how evolutionary theory leads to a kind of transcendent knowledge. Uh, my second goal is to talk about evolution and morality, saying just a bit about religion, and then to end by saying only a little bit about evolution and public policy. And so I will have accomplished something, I think, if I actually meet these, um, um, meet these um, our goals. And I'm going to do this by basically telling you how I teach my own students, uh, uh, freshmen just coming in not knowing anything about evolution, how I present some of these evolutionary concepts to them, uh, with apologies to the sophisticates in the audience, because uh, we certainly do have some um, um, experts in evolution. But uh, OK, here are the three ingredients of natural selection. Um, variation, individuals differ in so many respects. Uh, consequences, these differences make a difference for survival and reproduction. And then heritability, a kind of a yeast that makes the recipe come to life. And so with heritability, a resemblance between parents and offspring, that turns organisms into a kind of a malleable clay that can be molded by the forces of survival and uh, reproduction. Isn't it astonishing that such a theory, a theory like this can be conveyed in such a short space, less than a, a minute, really? In my book, I say that learning about natural selection is like having a premature orgasm. <laughs> you think it's going to take a long time and lead to a tremendous climax, but then it's over almost as soon as it began. <laughs> 
And so here is a classic example. So we imagine moths and they differ in how well they blend into their backgrounds. So those are the differences. Those differences make a difference. The most conspicuous moths are removed by uh, predators. And then we had heritability and over m multiple generations uh, the moths should just melt into their um, background. Now how many of you can see the moths in this, uh, the moth in this uh, picture? Uh, that's because there is no moth in this picture. <laughs> <laughs> this is just tree bark. <laughs> there is a moth, and it does a pretty good job. If you're a busy bird, uh, then you might well overlook this moth. And right away we can make this point about evolution leading to a kind of a transcendent knowledge, because this statement, basically prediction, based on the relationship between organisms and the environment, applies to all organisms, regardless of what their taxonomy is. So you can actually say something about the properties of organisms without being an expert. You don't have to be an ichthyologist or, a, or an entomologist or a, or a herpetologist. You can say something about the properties of organisms uh, just based on this organism uh, um, um, environment relationship. That's what it means to, for evolution to have this kind of transcendent knowledge. Now, based on only this, the first lecture of my class to my freshmen, I can now say, now it's time for you to think like an evolutionist. And let's pick a particular topic, infanticide. And since having offspring seems to be the name of the evolutionary game, it might seem that infanticide, killing offspring, might never, could never evolve. But with a little thinking, you might be able to identify some environmental context, some environmental situations in which infanticide is, in fact, can evolve as a biological adaptation. And then I ask them, as I am going to ask you, what are they? There's a big three environmental context. And if you're a sophisticate, you're not allowed to answer. <laughs> Come on, guys. I get my freshmen to talk. You can too, yes? insufficient resources that if you can't survive yourself or if you have existing offspring that, uh, that uh, uh, need resources and that is no time to have an additional offspring. So absent a lack of resources is one of the big three. Yes, sir? Isolated societies such as on islands. Okay. Can you spell that out for me a little bit? Well, in Japan they're still practicing weeding the garden at the age of three. All right. I'm going to set that one aside. <laughs> That's not necessarily wrong. It's not one of the big three that I'm searching for. Yes, sir? Transportation? To escape predators that you might, if you were, oh, I see, that you would sacrifice an offspring just as to slowing you down. That would be just fine, yes. Uh, yes, that's right. So it's, uh, basically, uh, um, genetic parentage. That, uh, that, from a Darwinian standpoint, the name of the evolutionary game is to have your own offspring, not someone else's offspring. And you should all be thinking about such things as adoption and other seeming exceptions uh, to that rule. But one big context for infanticide is if there's a likelihood that that offspring is not your own. And so that is uh, the two. There's one more major context. Overpopulation is actually a little bit problematic. I'm going to set that aside also. But that has to do with group selection, basically. That if you, if you elect not to have offspring for the good of the group, okay, the group benefits from that, but uh, you suffer compared to, compared to your Catholic brethren, brethren who are having as many offspring as, as possible. Disease or, in general, offspring quality. That from, the, from, the, from, an evol from the Darwinian perspective, the name of the game is to have offspring that themselves will have offspring. 
And if for any reason you have offspring which are themselves unlikely to have offspring, then that is another context for infanticide. Okay? Okay, so there they are, the big three. And there's some other ones as well, which my students, as you did, routinely come up after learning just an ounce about evolution. They're able to come up with these three uh, predictions about where in nature we should expect to find infanticide. So I call this simple but profound. What made my students so smart? They're college freshmen. They haven't read anything on the subject. I certainly hope they haven't experienced it for themselves. They've learned just an ounce of evolution, and something about that way of thinking enabled them, like heat-seeking missiles, to hone in on intelligent guesses about, about the properties of nature, which, in fact, do explain the bulk of situations in which infanticide occurs. That's what we're talking about with transcendent uh, knowledge. Isn't it amazing that we can use this very simple theory to make predictions about the properties of nature? We've had said nothing about genes. We've said nothing about the physical makeup of organisms. All of this is about the, uh, the relationship between organisms and their environment. This is so uh, we're used to this, but it's extraordinary to think of uh, to just uh, step back at the power of this. And as for infanticide, so for an infinity of other questions. So why is it that sexes are, are uh, often differ? Males and females often differ in size, and males in some species can be much bigger than others, as in these elephant seals, or in some cases much smaller, as in this deep-sea anglerfish, in which here's the lure. Uh, she dangles so to uh, eat unsuspecting prey. And over here, there's a diminutive male who swims up and finds a female and then bites her on the butt until, her, until his lips fuse with her skin, and he becomes a living bag of sperm. So what accounts for this extraordinary variation in the relative sizes of males and females? How are you feeling, guys? <laughs> Why do some animals blend into their background? As we have seen, and other animals stand out as in this amazing facial display of this mandrel uh, baboon. What explains aging? Why is it that our bodies fall apart? Here's one of these heroic biologist who spends his entire life studying the same seabird colony. Here he is as a young man. Here he is as an old man still studying the same seabird colony. And that's the same bird. <laughs> there she is, looking a lot better than he is. So why is it that some species live, some in, in some species individuals live a year or three years and in others they can live a century? How do we explain something like senescence? And if we can ask all of these questions for the biological world, then what about us? If we can use this theory, you're so lucky if you're a biologist, if you're an evolutionary biologist, you can study all creatures, all subjects, yourself, professionally, you can move from one to the other at a professional level, and you can listen to other people with the same appreciation and understanding. It really is like a crystal ball, and if we can use that to study our own species, then why on earth wouldn't we? And so this unification of knowledge, which took place in the biological sciences is, and is continuing, as I said, is now being extended to all uh, human-related subjects. And that's what we aspire to do with our EVOS program, and which is taking place at uh, Binghamton University with a seminar series like this. We hold 10 seminars every semester, open to the entire university community on this rainbow of topics here. And just imagine. You know, faculty, graduate students, and undergraduate students from all departments getting together periodically and listening to this range of topics, biology plus humans, speaking a single 
theoretical common language of uh, evolutionary uh, theory. Okay, so now I hope I've accomplished my first objective of, uh, of evolution as a uh, leading to transcendent knowledge. And now let me show you how I uh, introduced the concept of uh, evolution morality to my uh, undergraduate students. So imagine that you were there way back then, and I ask you, uh, please list for me the traits that you associate with moral perfection. <coughs> What's that? Honesty. Honesty. What's that? Oh, you guys are so shy. Altruism. Altruism. Loyalty. Loyalty. Compassion. Compassion. Friendship. Friendship. I play this all around the world. It's always the same. I knew what you were going to say. <laughs> Last year, for the first time, I played, I played this game to an audience of, of, of professional philosophers. And I thought, now I'm in for it, because you know, philosophers love to invent these moral dilemmas, right? But I got the same, same. So in addition to moral dilemmas, there's also moral no-brainers. And these are some of the moral no-brainers. And the first time I did this, a, a devout student in my class shouted out, Jesus is the uh, <laughs> exemplar of moral uh, perfection, as indeed he is, at least in our own uh, society. OK, now list the traits that you associate with pure evil. Greed. Murder. Prejudice. You guys are no fun. I'm going to go to a Baptist church. Indeed. Same less happens each and every time. And the, uh, and the same class in which my devout student shouted out uh, uh, Jesus, uh, a less devout student shouted out uh, that bastard. The evil villain of Austin Powers movies. And ever since then, I've had the most disturbing image. I just can't get it out of my head, and now neither can you. OK, so now with these two sort of stereotype caricatures of the good and evil individual, I want to perform three thought experiments. So number one, what would happen if you put a good person and an evil person together on a desert island. The good person will die? I read your lips. That's right, the good person will become shark food within days. And so again, simple but profound. We're making light, but this is, this is simple but profound. There is something about the traits that we associate with goodness that is inherently vulnerable to the traits that we associate with evil. Okay, This is very, very important. The second thought experiment, what would happen if you put a group of good people on one island and a group of evil people on another island, and we have the islands far apart so there's no transfer between islands? What will happen then? Speak it out, shout it out. Overpopulation on the dead people. Oh, man. <laughs> Now, that's when they commit infanticide. <laughs> the good people thrive. This is not a trick question. The good people thrive. They, they build a boat to escape the island, or they build a little paradise on Earth while the evil group will self-destruct. And so, again, simple but profound. And just, it's, just as it is true that goodness is vulnerable to evil within any given social group, it is equally true 
that, that groups of organisms, not just people, but organisms, and behave in the way that we associate with goodness, will survive and reproduce in purely biological terms better than groups who behave in ways that we associate with evil. In purely Darwinian terms. And so the third thought experiment, what will happen if you allow one evil individual to paddle over to Virtue Island? And the answer to this question is not simple. It is a messy combination of the easy answers to now two things are going on. Okay, so goodness, evil beats goodness within groups. Goodness beats evil between groups. And both are going on. Now we have a conflict, basically. We have evolution going in different directions. So simple but profound. What this shows is it's not the case that evolution explains selfishness well and goodness poorly. The traits associated with goodness can evolve, but only if appropriate conditions are met. So, so unselfishness is indeed vulnerable to selfishness within groups, but groups of selfish individuals do better than any other kind of group. And so the outcome depends on the relative balance of these opposing forces. And we heard a little bit about group selection, multi-level selection. This is the quickest way I know to convey this uh, very interesting theory. But most important, what this does is that it turns evolutionary theory from a threat to a useful tool. Because if you think that evolution undermines the concept of morality, that if Darwin was right, then we can behave like animals, as it is often said, okay, then evolution will be uh, threatening. But now if we see that evolution can potentially explain the full spectrum of behaviors, from extreme good to extreme evil, then it becomes a useful tool for us to provide the environment in which goodness can thrive. And we are putting that simple idea to use right now with the talk I gave yesterday to the Beck group. It was actually about how we're putting this very simple idea to use to make our communities and our neighborhoods and our schools a better place by creating social environments that favor goodness and cooperation as a Darwinian um, uh, strategy. Well, that was an imaginary experiment, but now I want to tell you about a real experiment. This is um, work done by my colleague, a poultry scientist named uh, William Muir at where else? Purdue University. And Bill Muir wanted to breed a more productive strain of hens. Hens have always lived in uh, flocks, in groups. Nowadays, they live in cages, I'm sorry to uh, report. And so both experiments involved multiple cages of hens. And in the first experiment, the most productive hen within each cage was chosen to breed the next generation of hens. In the second experiment, the most productive cages were chosen, and all of the hens in those cages were chosen to breed the next generation of hens. Now, you might think that these experiments are similar and that the first one might work better because, after all, it's individuals that lay eggs, so why not pick the most productive individuals? Wouldn't it be less efficient to, to select the best groups, which, after all, might have some unproductive hens? But the results told a completely different story. Here is the result of the first experiment after six generations. And what we see here is three hens, not the original nine, because the other six have been murdered. And these three survivors have plucked each other in their incessant attacks on themselves. Egg productivity plummeted over the course of six generations, even though the most productive hen was chosen each and every generation. And so what happened? The most productive hens achieved their productivity by suppressing the productivity of the other hens in their groups. Evolution is a relative process. It's always who 
reproduces not in any absolute sense, but who survives and reproduces better than who. And so uh, Muir had selected the meanest hen in each group, and after six generations had produced a nation of psychopaths. <laughs> Here is the result of the second experiment. After six generations of selecting at the group level, this is now like the second um, thought experiment. Now we have nine happy and healthy uh, hens. I call these your Mr. Rogers hens here. They, they want to be your neighbor. And, uh, and uh, egg productivity uh, shot up 160% in six generations because he was selecting for traits that not only caused individuals to thrive, but also facilitated or at least didn't interfere with the productivity of one's uh, neighbors. And I think that this is, you know, there's so many messages in this. One of the messages is what counts as an individual trait? When we see people, for example, that are thriving and we think that's, a, you know, that's their property as an individual, we're so individualistic in the way we're thinking. And so, but what we really need to remember in ourselves in addition to these hens is that when an individual is thriving or languishing as an individual, that can be a product of social interactions that have been taking on a long, long. So what seems to be an individual trait, in fact, as in this case, can be a um, social uh, trait. Now, I gave this talk now many years ago, and afterwards, uh, a professor ran up to me, and she said, that first experiment describes my department. <laughs> I have names for those three checkers. So evidently, her department had, had instituted a policy that rewarded its members purely for their own accomplishments, and the result had been something similar to the first chicken experiment. Now, genetic evolution had not taken place, but something similar had. And again, simple but profound. For the formal version of this, as game theorists talk about it, it's called the replicator dynamic. Any process that causes the most successful behavioral strategy to increase in frequency in the population counts as an evolutionary process and gives you basically the same outcome. And so that includes genetic evolution plus more and what this means is that there's more to evolution than genetic evolution. There's all sorts of fast-paced psychological and cultural processes which count as evolutionary and give us the same kinds of outcomes as genetic evolution. And so that's one reason why we need to be sophisticated evolutionists, because there's much more to evolution than genetic um, evolution. And so this theory... Uh, does very well in explaining group-level adaptations in non-human uh, species. We all know about the honeybees, which truly do, and other social insect colonies, which truly do qualify as group-level superorganisms. In a profound sense, uh, social insect colonies are a single organism. And I wish I had more time to tell you some stories about even to the point of having a group mind in which the individual bee is functioning more like a neuron than like a mental process in its own right. Here's something uh, you might not know about. This is a social microbe, the uh, slime mold, the cellular uh, slime mold, which uh, is also uh, turns itself into a superorganism, spends part of its life cycle as a single-cell amoeba, where when time gets tough, streams together into groups of many thousands of individuals, formed itself into a single body, migrates the equivalent of 40 miles, if they were as big as we were, builds itself into a tower, so uh, a, a ball of spores supported by a tower, and uh, the stock cells um, um, don't reproduce, and so they commit self-sacrificial altruism so that the spore cells can uh, reproduce. 
And so this concept of groups is very, very highly adaptive units is something which is, exists throughout the biological world, and the very same theory counts as an excellent theoretical framework for the study of religion. There's a wonderful, wonderful stained glass window in St. John's University in Minnesota, Catholic University and uh, the oldest Benedictine monastery in, um, in uh, North America, which combines the, the honeycomb motif in their stained glass window uh, uh, format. And here it is in words. If you're familiar with religion, this is uh, from the Hutterites, but uh, it occurs again and again. This was written 350 years ago. True love means growth for the whole organism whose members are all interdependent and serve each other. That is the outward form of the inner working of the spirit, the organism of the body governed by Christ. We see the same thing among the bees who all work with equal zeal, gathering honey. And so religious folks are forever telling us that their communities are like bodies and beehives, two biological units. And, and amazingly enough, this can actually be taken as face value. This is not a poetic metaphor. This can actually be taken as face value from an evolutionary perspective. So I wish I had time to give you a full hour on religion from an evolutionary perspective. The best I can do is to uh, direct you to this website on evolutionary religious studies. If you just type in evolutionary religious studies, you'll get to this website. And then you can acquaint yourself with this very, very interesting field in which evolutionary theory, as strange as it might seem, is going to become the theoretical framework of choice for the study of religion. Um, progress reports. Scientific and research and scholarship already arrived. Higher education in progress, thanks to EVOS and similar um, Programs And so now let me end by saying just a little bit about public policy and real-world uh, applications. Uh, not yet in progress. If the situation is grim for higher education, it's even worse for applying these ideas to uh, public policy. Here's some of the bad news. Of course, we have this incredible public ignorance and misinformation about uh, um, evolution among the general public. P pity the politician. They don't dare say the E-word, no matter what they might think. I was just, they call them squirming on the stage when they were asked during the uh, primaries, what do you think about evolution? So they're completely conflicted and handicapped about what they can say about that. And even worse, their advisors, their expert advisors, in any human-related subject, such as economics or political science or, or whatever, will not have had evolutionary training in their own education. So currently, there is no conduit by taking this very important knowledge and applying it to um, um, public policy until now. And so, um, and so just recently, um, uh, we've started to uh, uh, create an uh, institute, a think tank, called the Evolution Institute, which is designed to do for the world of public policy formulation uh, what EVOS does for the world of higher education. So think of the Discovery Institute done right. Uh, here's a, this is now just a two-year-old project. I just want to acquaint you with it. Uh, one thing we did, we, we, said, we really need a proof of concept. We need to pick up a, a, a topic that we can show um, uh, can, be, can shed new light from an evolutionary perspective. And we picked the topic of childhood education. Here's something that everyone wants to do it well. Billions of dollars thrown at it, billions of, of research dollars, and yet why does it end up working so poorly? Why is education so bad, especially in America, given everyone's best intentions and efforts. And is it possible that by approaching this from an evolutionary uh, perspective, 
that we can actually come at it a new way and get fresh insights on how to educate our children from an evolutionary uh, perspective. This workshop was held last November, and it really was, for me, a risky gamble. As I told the workshop participants, this is not like picking a low-hanging fruit. You know, there's a genuine question as to whether this is going to work. And it worked spectacularly. It really does. There, I mean, there are some things that are so straightforward from an evolutionary perspective, and yet we have not converged upon them. And if you go to the EVOS website, then you can, uh, these, um, this workshop presentations are on the, on the website, and you can see the videos. I very much encourage you to uh, do so. And my own presentation justifies the need for an evolutionary think tank in more uh, detail. Um, uh, just uh, when the, uh, when the um, uh, financial crisis hit, one of our potential donors, who was a captain of industry, emailed me and said, well, David, what can evolution say about this? What can evolution say about the regulation of social interactions in any species, including humans? And what, does it, what can we say about the regulation of social interactions at the, at the scale of small-scale groups and then, and then at, the scale, at, at, at a large scale, including financial interactions in addition to other social interactions. And so I, I took up this project, and, uh, and dang, if it didn't turn out just like a, the most exciting thing. So I submitted a proposal to NESIN, which is the uh, National Evolution Synthesis Center, NSF's largest evolution-related uh, center and, 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 and proposed a workshop, uh, actually a fairly large conference, on the, on the nature of regulation. And I actually just heard this morning that it was funded. And so this is going to be a most excellent adventure. And then, uh, and then um, uh, Bruce Ellis, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, 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 an evolutionary developmental psychologist who was at our education workshop, said, I want to have one of these workshops on, the, um, on the subject of adolescent risk behavior. What is it that causes any, any age category, but especially adolescents, to develop such risky behavior? Currently, the prevailing model is called the health model, and it basically treats risky behavior as a pathology. Is it possible that risky behavior is an adaptation to certain environmental circumstances? And in just the same way that, that, that the traits that we associate with good and evil and factly actually can be adaptive or not, depending on the circumstances, that the behaviors that we associate with risky and safe can be adaptive depending on the social environment? Can, might we make some headway um, this way? And finally, asthma and many other uh, health foci, the whole subject of Darwinian medicine. This is one of the paradox that how is it possible for the health sciences and for medicine to be so sophisticated as far as mechanistic, reductionistic research is concerned, so very sophisticated and so clueless about the evolutionary big picture, which actually informs the questions that we should be asking, even from a mechanistic and reductionistic uh, perspective. And so the concept of Darwinian medicine, which like so many other concepts was really originated and only became coined, that term, in the 1980s and the 1990s is still a very underrepresented perspective in the medicine, medical and health sciences that we can uh, promote. And so um, these are just some of the things that we're doing. And what I hope I can convince you is, uh, here's a brash statement, in the future, evolutionary theory will be as essential for public policy formulation as physics and chemistry are essential for um, technology. And I think that not only is this true, 
but that we can accomplish this transformation sooner than we might think. That we're kind of used to a stalemate, that the, this 50% figure for people that don't believe in evolution will forever remain the same, um, the same figure. But I'm really much more optimistic um, than that. I think that um, when it comes to both evolution and its uh, acceptance, uh, the uh, past is no guide to the future. And so, happy birthday, Charles. I'd like to thank all of the different units that uh, uh, went into this organization and went into this uh, um, uh, lecture series and with, uh, with whom I've been having a great time uh, during my visit. So thank you very much. Uh, I, I'm always buoyed when I hear you talk and um, uh, you know, filled with optimism. Um, I want to address just briefly that 50% number, right? So it seems to me that the, the line of argument and evidence that you've laid out and that you and many other people have contributed to um, can effectively counteract the, the argument that without religion there is no moral behavior. And um, your own work can show that uh, well-designed religious institutions promote uh, what we as a society recognize to be a beneficial outcome. Um, but it seems to me that you're skirting around where that 50% issue uh, really comes down to. And actually, I think the number is higher. It's more like 65% of people um, uh, don't believe uh, in evolution. And I put believe in scare quotes there because one doesn't believe in a, in a theory. Um, and, and that is a fundamental issue of fact, right? So um, are the cosmological um, foundations correct or are they incorrect? Is the world less than 10,000 years old, or is it billions of years old? It seems to me that that's where the vast majority of Americans are stumbling, is that uh, it's not an issue of um, do their religions actually promote better neighborhoods? Um, uh, Are the members of their religious groups more moral by the standards that we as a society accept at large? But rather, is their fundamental understanding of reality accurate or inaccurate? Yeah, I think that uh, these are deep questions, and uh, but I think that there's the question of you know of, uh, uh, the cart and the horse, and uh, and um, what's so fascinating about religions. What I think we can say about uh, religion is that in the first place they are very communitarian, and they're they're designed to be communitarian, and the way they do it is by these beliefs. Okay, and we are both familiar with this as the proximate mechanism and the ultimate proximate explanation and the ultimate explanation. I disagree that, uh, that uh, those 65% of Americans really care more about the, um, the belief system than the practical benefits. And you see this every day uh, when people, especially when they start having kids, what do they do? They shop for religions. They shop for religions. And they try to find the best ones for their, for their kids and their social Environment, And when you listen to religious folks talking about each other, as I do at every opportunity I get, 95% of it is about peace on earth and cooperation, a path to enlightenment, the individuals and, and communities can be better in the future than in the past, and in a more local sense, finding a really good social environment for themselves and especially for their children, and transmitting the best values to their children. That's what they want. And then they will take the belief system that, uh, that uh, that's a, I think that's taking a subordinate, the, the belief system takes this subordinate role. And so that means that if you can, now everyone needs a value system. There's no exceptions to that rule. 
But if you can have, a, and it's only very, very recently that we've, that there's been a need to have a value system which respects the facts, uh, that fully respects the facts. Let me just, just, just one more minute, because this is, I was talking to Steve and Patty about this is a real paradox. The only religions worth wanting are those that are engaged, that engage the lives of the religious community. So engagement is, is important for a religion. Throughout history, the way that religions have been engaged is, 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 through, is, is through the belief in an engaged God. Isn't that the simplest way to create a belief system that's, that's engaged in the lives of the people is to, have, is to imagine a God that is personally engaged. Okay? That's not true of each and every religion, but it's, it's very common. Now we have to have a religion or another belief system that's engaged, but which does not assume an engaged God, because as you say, science is, has, has rejected that hypothesis. So it's not, it's not that there's no conflict. There is a conflict. The engaged God hypothesis has been disproven. And then the question is, how insurmountable is that for uh, uh, religious believers? So I think that, in a way, restates yours. And it's an empirical question as to how we can do that. What do you think of Richard Dawkins and his uh, self-described militant atheism? Do you think that helps or hurts your evolutionary cause? Um, oh, thank you for asking that question. <laughs> um, first, let me praise Dawkins before I... Uh, I um, I criticize him. Uh, he is responsible for turning on thousands and thousands of, of, um, of people to uh, evolution through his uh, work. And he is a hero to many people as a, uh, as a secularist, basically. And, as a, um, um, and so I think all of these things are um, admirable. His Nobody bets a thousand, and uh, he came out on the losing end of a very important controversy in evolution. That was group selection. And so that is one thing that uh, needs to be said. With respect to religion, I have a series of blogs on my Huffington Post blog called Atheism as a Stealth Religion. And I think that this is what's so very, very interesting. What is it about religion that puzzles us so much and that concerns us is that these beliefs that depart from factual Reality, but I have news for you. Religions are not the only <laughs> belief systems that depart from factual reality. And this is one of these evolution 101 statements, you know, so elementary, simple but profound, is that if the mind has evolved to uh, to adopt beliefs, you know, what what does it what does it what kind of beliefs will be adopted by by the evolved mind? Will it be beliefs that are, have truth value? Or will, it be, or will it be beliefs that have survival and reproductive value? And so the mind has evolved to adopt beliefs that enhance survival and reproduction. And then the truth value of those beliefs is going to depend on the trade-off between, you know, to what, when is it the case that a, that, a, that a true belief is also useful, also contributes to survival and reproduction? And that's a very complex relationship. So there's many, many, many situations in which beliefs become more useful by becoming less true. And religions max out on that. They're unconstrained, and so they can create very, very powerful belief systems that are highly motivating and can cause you to do you know, very useful things, especially at the group level, because they're not constrained by their factual value. Well, now let's look at some belief systems that count as, as 
uh, non-religious, like patriotic histories of nations. Well, those also depart from factual reality. All sorts of ideologies depart from factual realities. And I hate to say it, and I wish I could say that Richard Dawkins was my colleague and my partner in studying religion from an evolutionary perspective as a scientist. But it's not the case. And if you look at what he says about religion, it's adaptive fictions. They're saying things about religions which aren't true. And so there's a difference between this sort of ideological atheism, which is associated with Dawkins and Dennett and Hitchens and, and, and um, um, Harris, and the, and, the, and the scholarly study of religion from an evolutionary uh, perspective. And I go through that in detail, in uh, detailed reviews of both Dennett's book and Dawkins's book, and also in uh, my uh, series of blogs called Atheism as a uh, Stealth Religion. You know, atheism, the old atheist was Ayn Rand and her, her philosophy of objectivism. And in my book, Evolution for Everyone, I have a chapter called Ayn Rand, Religious Zealot. <laughs> and the irony of that, of course, is that Ayn Rand was a zealous atheist. But if you look at her philosophy of objectivism, what you will see is something which is just like a fundamentalist religion. And we're seeing that now, aren't we? And this, in, the, in, the, in the fallout, basically, of this belief that, that uh, basically individual self-interest is going to just make everything turn out uh, okay at the, um, at the group level. We call it market fundamentalism, and that's exactly what it is. And so I think that you know, if we're worried about religions, we really need to worry about stealth religions. Because religions are self-evidently depart from factual reality. We have to worry about the belief systems that don't. They do a better job of masquerading. And that includes some scientific theories as well. So we have to be true skeptics. And we have to examine all beliefs as from a, uh, uh, from a scientific uh, perspective. And I think that Dawkins comes up very, very short on that particular uh, score. So this is actually about similar, not really to this question, but it has to do with Dawkins in that I know there was a debate about between Gould and Dawkins, or at least they represented a debate. And um, one, is, is that going on still, or is there a ruling on one side or another um, in the scientific consensus? And um, does one point of view further benefit your, your take on the evolution and how it can apply to many, many different layers of, of intellectualism, I guess. Great. Wonderful, wonderful question. So thank you very much for that one. Um, and that one is especially interesting in relationship to the previous uh, question. Uh, the legitimate debate, uh, and I'm not sure it should be called a debate, but the legitimate issue is that uh, there's more to evolution than adaptation. So that although natural selection is like the centerpiece of evolutionary theory, uh, there's many senses in which traits can evolve which are not adaptive. They do not contribute to survival and reproduction. And, and, and Gould's metaphor that, for that was the spandrel, that uh, the spandrel is the space between, that forms between arches necessarily. If you put arches next to each other, there will be a triangular space, and that's what's called the spandrel. Well, spandrels have no purpose. Arches have a purpose, but spandrels don't. And so although they can acquire a secondary purpose, such as serving as a decorative space, and so Gould, one of the things that Gould is known for is by saying, accusing or criticizing his, his colleagues for being over-exuberant adaptationists and telling just-so stories when, in fact, many of the things that they were trying to say are adaptations, in fact, were spandrels. Okay. Well, that is a very legitimate point. 
And so every good evolutionist should know that there are spandrels in addition to uh, uh, adaptations. And it is possible to discriminate between them. Uh, what's interesting is why that became a controversy and why it became known as the adaptation wars and why it became so vituperative. I think in part was because of the ideological associations that it acquired upon the publication of Ed Wilson's book, Sociobiology. And at that point, those who were against sociobiology because they thought of it as basically a form of social Darwinism, then developed a defense. And I think that this critique of adaptationism, in a sense, was a, a disguised critique of, of sociobiology, when in fact it didn't need to be. And so I actually think that ideology did figure in that uh, uh, controversy. Now I would like to think that that controversy is no longer a controversy and that we occupy a phrase I like is uh, fighting for the middle ground. <laughs> you know, the hardest ground to seize is the middle ground. And so these things become polarized. But now I think, uh, in that case at least, uh, most evolutionists are occupying the, um, the, 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 the reasonable middle ground. And when we study something, we know that it might or might not be an adaptation. We roll up our sleeves and we, and we, uh, and we, um, we do the hard empirical work to, uh, to determine uh, on a case-by-case -case basis what that, uh, uh, what that is. So um, I, I was surprised by your answer about the juvenile delinquents that you would put them into families rather than wouldn't you treat them just like the chickens and put them into small groups of individuals and then reward the, the groups that were rehabilitated by letting them go? Uh, yes, you would. I didn't mean to imply otherwise. And during my talk uh, yesterday, I, um, I um, uh, told about an a, a intervention program called the Good Behavior Game, uh, which is uh, a well-validated practice in which you can take a uh, disruptive uh, classroom environment, uh, elementary classroom environment, and you can uh, um, install a culture of good behavior uh, actually very quickly, which has a long-lasting effect, such long-lasting effects that it's called a behavioral vaccine, that children who have, who have uh, uh, participated in classes that play the good behavior game in first and second grade, if you check back when they're 14 years old, uh, they're much less likely, for example, to have um, uh, started to smoke. This is really astonishing. And it, and it involves uh, very much um, a, a program of forming individuals into groups, establishing norms, establishing norms by consensus, and then, and then uh, what's called soft competition between groups uh, so that this uh, actually turns peer pressure to, be, uh, to promote good behavior rather than, uh, rather than bad behavior, and it goes on from there. So one of the things that I think is, uh, enables me to be an optimist, and I didn't really appreciate this myself until I started reading uh, some of this literature, is that there are success stories out there. We've kind of become pessimists about the, our capacity to change uh, at all scales, from the individual scale to the small group scale to the, uh, to the scale of large societies. And I think that uh, um, I have grounds to be optimistic. It is indeed a personality trait of mine to be uh, optimistic, but I think that I also have uh, authentic grounds to be optimistic about our capacity, and, and, and as I think of it, to manage the cultural evolutionary process. Good, I think we have all evolved socially this evening, for which we have to thank David Sloan Wilson. <laughs> 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.